0: Um, The resources I'm going to be using today, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version Bible. So if you have one, your Bible will read the same. Um, And I used a lot of the ESV study notes. I also used something called the Bible Recap Podcast, which is a phenomenal recap of a grouping of chapters. And they just do an excellent job of um, study and also putting the recap together and also the Bible for everyone. Um, Genesis part one by theologian, John Goldengay and N.T. Wright. So those were some of the resources that I used. Um, We're going to start with an overview of the chapters using the heart study method. So the H-E-A-R-T and under our here Jesus, Jesus came to make all things new. And so in this family that we're reading about, who became, it went from a person to becoming a nation. Um, this nation is going to birth a savior that is going to reconcile our old self and our old identities into something new. And we see this is the work of Jesus. And he does this again and again. And he's going to do this for this family. And he does it for you and I. As we explore these chapters in context, we're going to see that Jacob is really getting tired of gaining through deception. His 20 years of serving Laban have humbled his posture and prepared him to make restitution for all that he has stolen from his brother Esau. As we apply this to our lives, names in the Bible were very, very significant. And I actually think there's something for you and I to explore in this. If you think about it, every time that people spoke Jacob's name, they spoke his identity over him. They literally called him deceiver, trickster. They, as they said his name, this is what they were saying over him. And so his pattern was this. When he was afraid, he would trick and deceive. But God gave him a new name and a new identity. And Jacob went from deceiver, one who strives with man, to Israel, one who strives with God and prevails. Jacob went from one who made his own way through trickery to one who who humbly serves God, in submission to God, and now lives from the place of full blessing. And he has a complete religion of God as his own God. So that's part of what we're going to be reading today. And the question I want to ask for you as we apply this to our lives is, what is your old identity? And what is your new identity in Christ? Who were you before God? And who are you now? And I just want you to kind of think about that as we go through this story and we see this reconciliation and redemption that's going to happen. So Lord, we ask you to show us how you're making us new. May we walk in the fullness of our new identity in Christ in a greater measure today, we pray in Jesus' name. So let's trust the Holy Spirit to lead us into that full inheritance in Christ as we dive into this story. So we're going to be reading from... Genesis 31 to 33. So we have three chapters to cover today, which is a lot. I'm going to start by just doing a recap in my own words of chapter 31, and then we're going to read through chapter 32 and 33 together. So Jacob in chapter 31, this is basically what's going to happen. We're going to cover the reunion of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, and we're going to see Uh, Jacob having an encounter with God, a supernatural encounter with God, where he's, God's going to change his name, his name. But first, Jacob needs to break free of Laban. And so we see our story kind of climaxing to this point, and he's got to break free before these other events can happen. So in chapter 31, what is happening is that Jacob overhears his brother-in-laws. These are Laban's sons. They would have been Laban's rightful heirs. And they're complaining and they're grumbling that Jacob is taking all of their father's wealth. And there's this hostility that's growing in Jacob. And there's this hostility growing in the family. And Jacob is noticing a difference in how he's being treated by the family. And God speaks to him and he tells him it's time to leave. Now, there's no doubt that God is blessing Jacob. In spite of Jacob's deceitful nature, God's faithful promise remains towards him, and he is blessing him, and he's making him into a great nation, both materially, so he's being blessed incredibly financially, materially with wealth, but also through the birth of his many sons. Everything Jacob touches flourishes, and Laban has benefited from this blessing. However, Now the abundant blessing on Jacob is multiplying exponentially and Laban and his sons are being threatened by all this. They can just see that he is flourishing and it seems to all be coming through Jacob's hands. So Jacob says to his wife, we need to get out of here. God is blessing me. And your father continues to take advantage of me and cheat me. And he, and he says to his wife, the God of my father. So here again, we see it's the God of his father has told me in a dream. It's time to go back to Canaan. The wives agree because they can see that they've been cut out of their family inheritance. So there's some dirt. There's some there's some dynamics that are happening that they're not happy with either. They've been cut out of the family inheritance. And so the Lord is giving their father's wealth to Jacob, but therefore that's benefiting them, too. So they're they're like, all right, we agree with you. Let's go. If one thing is evident in the lives of these patriarchs, it's that they're definitely not sinless, nor are their wives and their children. The curse of sin that is at war within them is the same that is at war within us each and every day. Yet God remains faithful despite their lack of faith. So Rachel steals some of her father's idols, and they set off on their journey. Now, it's hard to really know exactly why Rachel did this. It doesn't explicitly say Um, she evidently could see the favor of God on Jacob, but perhaps she never put her trust fully in Yahweh for herself. Or perhaps like many of us, she believed in the God of Jacob as long as it served her to do so, but she also wanted to keep her options open by trusting in idols as well. Another thought could be that she didn't want her father to worship these idols anymore, so she took them with her. We're not really sure exactly why she did that. Jacob leaves at a very busy time for Laban, so he doesn't notice that they're gone for three days. But once he finds out, he is so angry and so upset, and he begins to make some plans to go and pursue them. He accuses Jacob of tricking him, but the actual translation to that is Laban says to him, you've stolen the heart. He accuses Jacob of stealing everything from him, but Jacob actually only took what was rightfully his, what rightfully belonged to him. Laban had disinherited his daughters by selling them to Jacob, but yet now he's making a claim once again to them in an effort to manipulate Jacob. Laban actually learned, and we heard this in the chapters previous, that through divination, which is witchcraft, um, that he was being abundantly blessed because of Jacob. So naturally, Laban feared Jacob leaving for his own selfish purposes. So Jacob's name, it means swindler, deceiver, heel grabber. From the moment of his birth, he has been using deception and trickery to advance in life. What started in his grandfather, Abraham, as fear and lying, repeated again with his own father, Isaac. And now fear, lying, deception is multiplying in the life of Jacob, where it seems that all major decisions of his life are rooted in fear, causing him to lie, cheat, trick, or deceive. And now this exact same type of manipulation, lying and deceit is coming against him and playing out in his own family repeatedly. Yet despite this, God protects Jacob from Laban and his family as a part of a larger plan of redemption that is unfolding. Now, why would God do this? God is protecting the line of the chosen offspring that will eventually lead to the coming Christ. So, this is a very important piece, and we're going to see this thread as we read through all of the Old Testament stories. Pastor Jason brought this up yesterday as well that the enemy is at work wanting to stop the plan that God has in place. So, we've got all of these dynamics playing out both in the supernatural and in the natural. Next, we see Laban accusing Jacob of stealing his gods. Jacob takes great offense to this as he claims he's never stolen anything from Laban, but instead served him faithfully for many years. He tells Laban to take back anything that belongs to him and whomever has stolen his gods shall not live. Old Testament vows such as these have caused deep, deep sorrow. And we're going to see this play out in many stories as that we read in the future. As we go through the Old Testament, Jacob has no idea that the love of his life was the one who had stolen them. So Jacob begins to search through all of the camps and he does not find anything. Now, Rachel is sitting on the idols and she deceives her own father. The irony of this, again, this deception playing out by saying she cannot get up. She's sitting on the idols because the way of the woman is upon her. Now, this never actually comes to light, which is interesting. Yet we will see in the story that Rachel's life ends really before her time. She dies before she should. She dies as a young woman giving birth to their 12th son, Benjamin. So Laban is now at a loss. He wants to claim rights to his family and to all that Jacob has, but he can see that this is not going to happen. So in order to save face, he makes a covenant with Jacob under the guise that he wants to protect his daughters and his grandkids. But truly, he just wants to protect his own life and possessions. So they make a serious binding oath in the presence of two witnesses. And Jacob sets a stone, which is representative representative of Yahweh, the one true God. And Laban sets up several stones to represent his many gods, and they make a vow that they will remain peaceful. Now, these pillars suggest Jacob is establishing his monotheistic faith, so that a monotheistic faith is the belief in one God. And this is set alongside the polytheistic faith of Laban, the belief of many gods. Now, these pillars actually set a geographical boundary between Judah and Israel. And again, this will be significant in the future chapters that we're going to read. So that's chapter 31. Now we're going to dive into chapter 32, and you can follow along, and we're going to read through the chapter and unpack some of the things um, that we see as we uh, study these, these verses together. So this is Jacob fears Esau, chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place, Mahanam. Now these two verses provide an interesting interlude between Jacob's encounters with Laban and Esau. The reference to angels of God is reminiscent of Jacob's dream at Bethel that we read in chapter 28. The only other place in the Old Testament where this particular expression is used. So that's very interesting. Now, similarly, Jacob's observation, this is God's camp, parallels the previous comment about Bethel, that this is the house of God. Now, since camps were mobile, unlike houses, Jacob's remark suggests that God has sent his angels to accompany Jacob safely back to the land of Canaan. How phenomenal is that? (laughs) Mehanim means two camps, possibly alluding to God's camp and Jacob's camp but we're going to see this phrase again in a couple of verses ahead. Let's keep reading in verse three. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir in the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus says to your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now, You're starting to see the evidence of transformation beginning in Jacob's life. The strife, the constant striving, the manipulation, the trickery of all these is catching up with him. Jacob is afraid. Again, fear seems to be a trigger for him. But instead of responding how he always does with more secrets and trickery, he's humbled himself and he approaches Esau with humility and with an offering and with respect from the posture of a servant in submission. It's almost as though Jacob recognizes that his wealth has come at too high a cost. He stole his birthright and all his wealth has come through so much pain and suffering. And it seems that he would lay it all down for his brother's forgiveness. Jacob's heart is changing. Let's keep reading in verse six. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Esau and his 400 men suggest that Esau is planning to attack Jacob. There's no other reason why Esau would bring 400 men with him. Even though Jacob has responded in humility, it does not seem to be received. And Jacob is afraid and he fears and his fear shows up again. So he divides his family into two camps, thinking that if Esau is going to attack, he could at least spare half of his family. But we see this other beautiful moment of his changing heart when in the next verses, he comes to God humbly and cries out to God on behalf of his family. So let's read his prayer here. Verse nine. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord. Okay, so in this, this is Yahweh. He's saying, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I've become two whole camps. He's looking at all of the wealth that has come. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So we see this sign of transparency formation as Jacob at the beginning of this prayer calls God Yahweh for the first time. The significance of this is a, an intimate personal prayer to God. The first time that he actually calls God Yahweh for himself, not just the, yes, he says the God of my grandfather, the God of my father, but my Yahweh too. This is so, so, so significant. Jacob prays this. Humble and heartfelt prayer, even though he is still afraid, remember, fears his trigger, yet he confesses his fear to God and his posture of humility remains. We see the prophecy that the older will serve the younger will come to pass. But listen, not through dominance or deceit, but through Jacob's humility and servanthood and submission and generosity towards his brother. This is so powerful and so significant. And it reminds me again of our created purpose as gardeners and guardians We're called to walk in authority through servanthood. And we're going to see Jacob's authority established through servanthood and submission. In the next verses, Jacob sends the camps ahead with abundant gifts for Esau as a gesture of his forgiveness. Now we're just going to skip down to verse 22 and read about Jacob wrestling with God. Jacob wrestles with God. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and 11 children and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. And he said, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip pocket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. So this very same night that Jacob has prayed this humble prayer to God, called God his own God. He has a profound supernatural encounter with God, which marks this spiritual transformation that's been unfolding in Jacob's life. He wrestles with a man all night long, but Jacob is convinced that he is actually wrestling with God himself. Now, God came to Abraham in human form. So it is possible that this is God in human form. And again, this is anticipating the incarnation of Christ who will come to us in human form. They wrestle all night. So the man throws out Jacob's hip and he will walk with a limp for the rest of his days as a reminder of this transformative encounter. Yet even with this injury, he continues to wrestle and he says, I will not stop until you bless me. Now, I don't know if you're asking this question, but I was asking this question. Why would Jacob ask God to bless him? Wasn't he already incredibly blessed? How much more blessed could he possibly be? God blessed him materially. He had many sons. What more could Jacob want from God? All that Jacob has came through deceit, lying, and manipulation. So when he lies his head on the pillow at night, there is no peace, only strife and striving and struggle. When we get what we want through sinful means like deception or manipulation or lying or half-truths, it actually doesn't feel good. And it only leads to more discontentment. God gives Jacob a new name and a new identity. And Jacob has a revelation of who God is and recognizes the value and the necessity of God's blessing on his life. He actually can no longer go forward without it. He recognizes his utter dependency on God's provision and his peace and peace. And in this moment, he lets go of Jacob, the deceiver and becomes Israel, which means strives with God. The renaming of Jacob brings to a climax a lifetime of struggling and striving with man, and he's now known as one who strives with God and prevailed. When you let go of the old man, there's this deep, profound humility and recognition of our need of God, because we cannot continue the way we once were. We cannot continue to use the simple means that we once did for selfish gains. So we have to put our complete trust in God for everything we need. It's a completely new way of living and being. So Jacob calls this place Peniel, which means face of God. Now, this expression face-to-face that he's referring to here should be understood as a figure of speech for intimacy with God. Remember, we're going to see in the, in the coming uh, chapters in Exodus that God says to Moses, no one see the face of God and live. But Moses refers to this same um, saying face to face. But in both cases, the phrase can imply a close personal encounter or a vision of the brightness or the glory of God without suggesting a literal vision of God's face. All right, let's continue in Genesis 33. Jacob meets Esau. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now he himself went on before them all, bowing to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother." With Esau in sight, Jacob arranges his, his wives and his children in order of importance, with the pride of place being given to Rachel and Joseph, the only one of Jacob's sons to be named in this section. And that's very significant because we're going to see this theme play out in the story as it continues. Verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. When the servants drew near, they and their children, they all bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept this blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him. And so he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are in care to me. If they're driven too hard, even for one day, all of the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer." So Esau said, well, let me leave you with some of the people who are here with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped there before the city and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought uh, for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel. So this story ends with just this beautiful and powerful reconciliation. Remember, after 20 years apart, these brothers are reunited and reconciled. Jacob is a different man than when he left. Jacob now understands the grace and the mercy of God and relates this grace, relates this to the grace and mercy that Esau has shown him. Jacob literally says to him, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Jacob draws this remarkable parallel between this earlier encounter with God and his meeting with Esau. Like God. Esau shows unmerited favor to Jacob. Have you ever had someone say something to you or give you a gift or do something for you and you literally felt like it was God himself that was doing that for you through this person? Jacob is experiencing the undeserved grace and mercy of God through his brother. He knows he deserves to die for what he stole from his brother, yet his brother runs and embraces him. Does this remind you of of a New Testament parable? The father in the prodigal son story who runs and embraces his wayward son who's returned home. And like the prodigal son, Jacob approaches from the posture of a servant in submission, bowing down before his brother. Yet his brother embraces him in full restoration of his rightful place as his brother. Jacob begs them. He says, please accept my blessing. And in this context, um, Jacob's blessing refers to the tangible present of livestock that he gives to Esau. Now, previously, Jacob has deprived Esau of the blessing of the firstborn. And while Jacob cannot restore this particular blessing to Esau, he does seek to make restitution by giving him another blessing, which comes from God's blessing over Jacob. Now, Jacob erected an altar called El Elohi Israel, and that means God, the God of Israel. Yahweh has finally become his God, and he is a new man with a new identity. And we're going to be unpacking the significance of this name change a little bit more tomorrow with Pastor Jason. But all of this points back to the incredible gift of salvation that Jesus has provided for us, fully redeeming our old self, making us new, giving us the gift of divine purpose of authority through servanthood, establishing us as sons and heirs with a promise. What a wonderful salvation that you and I have received. Let's take a moment and pray and we are finished our chapters for today. Father, we thank you for the story of redemption that we see in these chapters. And over these past few days, many of us have been talking about the brokenness in our own families, the striving and the struggle between brothers and sisters and parents and children, and all of the stress and the problems that we see in the brokenness in our families. And Father, We just thank you, God, that you are making all things new. And even when we cannot see that you are working, you are working. And so, Father, I pray that every single one of us would receive by faith um, hope, fresh hope today for the restoration and the redemption journey that you have each one of us on. Thank you, God, for giving us a new identity through Jesus. We receive that afresh today. And we thank you for the redemption that you are making in our family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.